Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to a special bonus episode of The Alphabetical Fugazi. Host Ian James Wright here. I'm taking a break from my usual format in order to have a more wide-ranging conversation with my guest today, the producer of Fugazi's first EP and repeater and in on the Kill Taker, in addition to a bunch of Stone Cold classics by other bands, including Jawboxes for Your Own Special Sweetheart and Shudder to Think's Pony Express record, it's Ted Nicely. Ted, it's an honor to have you. Welcome. It's great to be here, Ian. I really, uh, I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, same here. There's so much I think we can cover. Um, before we jump into talking about Fugazi, I thought you might just like to give listeners a little update on uh, your health situation, which I understand is not ideal right now. Uh, it's it's not. Um... I started developing this uh, spine problem in 2013, and it got worse. And finally, around 2016, uh, people really started paying attention to it. And after a lot of jumping through hoops, I um, I ended up getting an operation, but it was misdiagnosed um i should have had a a spinal fusion and they did like this little kind of procedure called a foraminotomy i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing that right you'll see it on the gofundme page if you go there and it really kind of has uh, made it difficult to do anything and it was difficult before then because you know, I already couldn't, my, my physicality, you know, lifting stuff and everything was limited without like throwing me into a lot of pain. And I was trying to stay off uh, any kind of pain medication. And then, um, and then I had this operation because it, it was misdiagnosed and <laughs> not a very good thing. Uh, it took quite a few months to get adjusted. And I was, I was, and then um, this virus thing happened. I was going to begin, uh, I was going to get an operation on April 25th. And of course, uh, all the hospital shut down for elective surgery in March, I think, or, or late March, early May. And there was no way I was going to go into any place uh, when they started talking about opening up because I didn't believe they should. So now I'm kind of in limbo, but, you know, I'm trying to, to keep up. I mean, I'm, I haven't been able to work really out there. <clears throat> I've been working as a chef for quite a few years and, um, you know, I mean, on and off, uh, in between records or whatever. And now it's trying to, you know, when, the virus hit and all of a sudden everything was empty. You know, you had to, you had to really, you know, prepare for kind of a mildly apocalyptic situation. And now currently, I mean, we're speaking what on July 3rd, 2020 and things are getting a little worse. And uh, I just got to keep up going towards my goal. The thing that's really important is to have, the the funds for ancillary type stuff, you know, like going to and from uh, therapy and all that stuff, it all adds up. I I'm not particularly covered fantastically 
at this stage because when you get a certain age, you have to switch all your insurance around. So anyways, if anybody's interested in going to the GoFundMe page, see it, you can read the original, you know, mission statement, quote unquote, and, 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 and then the update we did the other day. Yeah, so listeners, I'll put the link to that in the show notes, but of course you can also find it really easily if you just Google Ted Nicely. Um, so yeah, if you have a few extra bucks if you're fortunate during this uh, crazy time, um, yeah, maybe see if you can kick something in and uh, help Ted out. Yeah, I, best wishes, Ted. I, I hope things turn around for you and Thanks. go well. I'm, I'm sure everything's going to work out. I hope so. So one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you, Ted, uh, is that, you know, to to listeners to this show, um, obviously they're big fans of Fugazi generally. Probably we've read and we've heard interviews a lot over the years about the history of the bands, like how they got together, when how things started, the history of how they, you know, recorded the songs, came up with ideas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But something that I feel like, at least for me, is not as written about is the, you know, the story of you and your interactions with the band and the influence that you had uh, on those early records. Um, so, yeah, I'd hope we could dig into that today, and I I urge you, don't be modest. If there's anything anything that you deserve credit for, take credit <laughs> for it, because uh, it would just be really interesting to uh, hear about that. Um, oh, also, just a note to our listeners, I'm recording this after uh, recording, like I already recorded some episodes that are scheduled to be released in the future. So if anything comes up that I'm like, oh, I, you know, it seems like I didn't know that before now, uh, that's why. So yeah. Do you want to start like in the beginning? How did your relationship with the guys in Fugazi begin? Where did you meet them? I had co-managed uh, Yesterday and Today Records in Rockville, Maryland, the, the store that... um. Skip Groff, you know, is a fantastic record collector, record person, musical person, uh, worked with Ian a lot. Um, you know, he pretty much helped Ian establish, you know, I mean, put out the first Teen Idols record and, and produced the Minor Threat out of Step record. And Skip and I were good friends, uh, and I was working there. Ian came to work there, and... You know, we weren't, uh, I I had just been, when Ian came aboard, I think it was maybe after I had been playing with um, a fellow named Tommy Keene, who got, uh, we had we had, had a lot of independent success, like a four-star Rolling Stone review for an EP we did called Places That Are Gone that I co-produced an earlier record that was more kind of regionally released uh, called Strange Alliance that Matador, uh, through the 12 Times You label, re-released. And anyways, I, he, he ended up getting signed to Geffen, and I was along for that ride for the first album. And, and I, I got out of, I, I left the band when we were in the familiar two-year limbo that a lot of... Um, groups get into when they sign with major labels maybe the album isn't as successful as everyone thinks it would be and um i just got tired of it i hated gavin kind of still do uh and <laughs> for other reasons right. and um and anyways i met ian at, at yesterday and today and you know uh, I, I always kind of thought he would laugh at this now because i mean we talk a lot 
but I always felt like he kind of didn't trust me or something. Like I was the corporate guy. And, and so, uh, but you know, we had a good sense of humor. I think he thought I was a bit like crazy, which, you know, and, and, and then Ian and Brennan came in and they were doing right to spring. Then they were, both fans of the Tommy King group, we had a lot of similar interests, you know, I mean, uh, you know, the church and, you know, just all kinds of music from Scott Walker and Mark Allman to the church to birthday party, big black, so on and so forth. So when Fugazi finally uh, gelled and Gee became part of the picture they were going in to, to do the, you know, self-titled out of EP. Mm-hmm. And 1988 at the time? I guess, yeah. And and Ian, I mean, uh, they, well, they kind of asked me, they asked me, would you be interested in coming to the studio with us and helping us make this record? And I said, yeah, sure. Although at the time, I was just getting ready to start a, a really kind of, short course like nine month course in a culinary school in Bethesda and I I had no intention of working for like 15 years being a producer of music you know so um, uh, it was it was just like I'm doing this one and that's it because I hate music now I don't hate music <laughs> but I hate the business of music and um, what's the sense that you get of why uh, they chose you um, out of all the people they knew? Like, uh, what, what do you think it was to set you apart in that way? They already knew me. I probably spoke to all of them, but but more Gee and Brendan, you know, because they were always asking questions about, you know, so what was it like to do this? Or, you know, when you did that, what did you do? And uh, I think they were especially interested that I had worked with Tommy on the places that are gone EP and that it had garnered a a lot of critical acclaim and that, uh, and it sold well to boot, I guess, not, not tremendously, but for an indie record at that point, you know, in 1983 or four, it it did really well. And I think Fugazi right out, right out of the gate, Fugazi didn't want, Ian didn't think that he should produce the record and neither did anyone else in the band, as I think it states in Joe's, uh, the making of it in the kill taker book. Right. Uh, you know, when they go back to this beginning stuff and, and also I think that between everybody, they want to make sure they got the vocals right. And, you know, just, they decided, I guess, they wanted a producer. And so, other than with Tommy Keen, is Fugazi the first outside band that you produced? No, no, I did. I think the reason I ended up co-producing uh, Tommy's stuff was because when I was in this other DC band called the Raz, I I had a lot to do with the the recordings in a non-production way. In a way, you know, I mean. I wasn't telling anybody, hey, you can do that better, or why don't we do that, or something. But I, I got very into trying to get different sounds that then studios were getting at that time, because 
it was at that point, it was like 1977 or something. And everybody were recording drums like Steely Dan Asia. Yeah. <laughs> or, or even like Linda Ronstadt records, which I, I think personally, like during that golden period uh, of hers, you know, with Peter Asher, that, you know, everything sounds good, but it doesn't have a lot of air. And I like to make, when I work on something, when I produce something, I like things to sound kind of natural, especially the drums. I want them to sound like a drum kit in the room. Right. And, and from there, maybe we can treat things a little bit, but I really want them to sound good acoustically. And, um, and so I'd be in the studio, one of these studios where, in fact, Linda Ronstadt had done like about three days of work on Heart Like a Wheel when she was on tour. And um, I used to sit around and read these magazines called Recording Engineer and Producer, and they would have diagrams of mic setups on certain albums and stuff like that. And and I, I was like, you know, at that point, I was probably thinking, man, you know, the drum sound on this year's model by Costello was so cool. Or, yeah, I like the, the drum sound on some girls. How did they do that? You know, you kind of looked and they were using ambient mics about nine feet away and nine feet up in the air. And I was like, I'll try that. And voila, there you were, a drum kit that sounded like drums instead of a piece of paper and, you know, some cardboard boxes that were the toms. And so that kind of started the evolution of it, you know, and, and then, uh, you know, and so with Raz's popularity, bands were asking me to do some work. Skip asked me to come along on, you're from, you're from Washington, D.C., right? Right. You, you know the band The Sleepy Boys, right? Uh, not too well, no. Well, um, they were kind of an early psycho-punk band, uh, psychedelic punk band, uh, uh, I suppose you would call them uh, in DC and Skip was going over there to work with them on the Forbidden Alliance EP that has a song Gotta Tell Me Why that was a mainstay on WHFS and I kind of somehow ended up being asked to work on things <laughs> which in turn led to me being called the producer of that record uh, and and, and Skip was the executive producer. It did really well. And that was my first experience in Don's basement, which was set up different from the way we did the first EP and repeater. But it worked and it was very good. And so it was just all these little band things that I did. And some of them got airplay and stuff. And uh, I'm not an engineer. You know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a producer. I don't like fiddling around with wires and all that stuff although on the fugazi records i'm probably more responsible for the sound of them than than i was comfortable with at the time interesting because i i just didn't you know i'm used to having the engineer beside me and us talking about you know the sounds or whatever and and don was behind me and you know like we'd be working on the the first EP is the one that sticks out in my mind mainly because we were all getting to know each other. And, and I was like, I don't like these toms, man. You know, and he said, well, you know, you just do this and this and this. And I was like, you know, 
please come down here and do this. I'll tell you when <laughs> it's good. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't really trust myself in this situation. So, you know, once we got that established, it was, it was cool. But, um, you know, it, it, I, I, uh, I was working more from a, uh, you know, I've always worked from a, what can I help this band achieve that they can't on their own, you know? And, yeah. And you were saying you had seen them live right before you worked with them, uh, before Guy joined the band, yeah, actually, mm-hmm. right? I saw them once before Guy joined the band. And then I saw, and maybe even during that gig, he may have come up there like for an early version of waiting room or something. You know, it's also long ago in a way. Because at that time, Guy was also playing, and Brendan, were playing in Happy Go Licky. You know that band? Yeah. And and I actually, no one ever mentioned this because they probably don't remember it. Uh, that was recorded like on a four-track cassette recorder, I think. And And then we went to Don's and I kind of tried to, you know, I guess master EQ it a bit. Because I loved that band. I, I mean, I loved them both, but I, I really thought Happy Good Licky was going to take off. Yeah, lots of people speak of that band rapturously. There are some big fans out there. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't get to see Rites of Spring. We, I kept on talking about it. You, you know, I remember the last night, the last gig they played, and um, I was going to go down there, but, you know, I was... This thing happens when you're in the competitive area of music, you know, i.e. trying to get it signed to a record label or whatever, or going through problems with your record label. And and you just, you know, it just kills you to go out there and have someone ask, you know, what's happening or something like that. So I didn't go. And it's a, it's a legendary gig, as were all of theirs, but... I didn't go, so I kind of felt with Happy Go Licky, I was kind of getting close to it because um, Eddie uh, Hampton was playing, right? And Happy Go Licky, I'm pretty sure. I loved Mike Fellow's bass playing, and of course, Guy and Bren. But, um, you know, I didn't go. So, you know, uh, it was it was cool to be involved. I mean, I still have thoughts of like, I'd love to remix Drink Deep by Rights of Spring. I, I think it could be like sort of re-recorded, but I, I, the recording's good. You know I mean? I just think that mix could be a little better. So having seen Fugazi and like sort of getting a sense of who they were as a band and knowing their songs, do you remember if you had a sense of like what you, what you thought you could bring to the project? No. You were just like flying by the seat of your pants a little bit? No, not really. I, I have an inherent belief in people when I say I'm going to go in to record them and I knew from seeing them that they were going to play really well. Uh, I was more, you know, I wasn't concerned. I don't know. I was, it was, it was an experiment, you know I mean? Like Ian had produced tons of stuff. Uh, I had done a healthy amount of stuff and been exposed to, tons of recording uh through you know and and, you know i mean i just i picked up a lot by watching and reading the watching part really comes from 
working with producers myself as a musician and, and knowing what I liked about it and knowing what I didn't like about it. So my thing was to not do anything that I wouldn't have liked someone to do with my band, with the band I was in. So, you know, we went in. I mean, it's I, I wasn't really worried about it. it. It got off to a great start and just kept on going, man. It, One of the things that uh, it seems like as far as what I've read is that you and the band maybe differed about a little is like the prospect of getting radio play or a little bit more like tailoring uh, that, things. That's this, that's this blown up thing. <laughs> <laughs> It's not true what you've heard. Oh, man. Let me tell you. Let me tell you something. <laughs> I mean, I read the bit. I've read this. Was it, it, Joe's book mentioned this thing about waiting room, right? Right, the pause. <laughs> and then, then the thing that really irritated the hell out of me was being on YouTube and something coming up on my on my YouTube feed because all I got to do is put Ted nicely into YouTube and every single record I've ever produced will come up and it's a lot of records. <laughs> and, and so up came also a podcast by these English guys or this English guy called thrashing something or whatever. And it had this, it was like, you know, a review of the in on the kill uh, taker book. He had obviously taken this part from it where we did waiting room. Okay. And Ian did on that break that on the demo of it, he does what, like a dub kind of uh, thing, you know, like, you know, what are those toasting kind of things? Uh -huh. And they had that heavy repeat on it, <laughs> but it came to that stop and we weren't using a click track or anything. So he, he had to count it <laughs> and they all had to count it. And he came in, and then he did, he just did, fuck. <laughs> and of course, it was really, it was really hilarious, right? And, and then also, it was like, hey, man, we should keep that in there, you know? And, and it was a giggle for a minute. And then I, I kind of thought they were getting serious about it. And I said, oh, man, you don't want that in there. It takes away such a, such a cool dynamic. And also, at the time... College radio, and I know this from being in a band and our primary, uh, we weren't getting played on national radio at the time of our independent records. We were being played on college radio. And they had a big thing about the seven bad words. And you couldn't say fuck. That was one of them. Right. And so I was like, you know, you don't want to have fuck on it and, and, and have, uh, you know, somebody get in trouble because they missed the beat button or something or didn't know it was coming up. And, uh, and, and you know, I think everybody kind of took that to mean, uh, I was like, you know, you don't want to ruin the idea of having a hit record, <laughs> you know, which is like, it, you know, look, we did that in 88. I was in Los Angeles riding down what is it the 405 or something and all of a sudden k-rock played waiting room and i was like wow that's <laughs> really strange and and i didn't know it had become a recurrent on on like 
postmodern alternative rock radio out there. And so I was pretty surprised, you know. I, I don't think the word fuck would have stopped him. You know, it was really down to that aesthetically. I didn't think it was very cool, you know. Yeah. It was just a thought, and I probably didn't need to say anything because in 15 minutes, nobody would have thought about it. But it's been turned into this big deal that it never, ever, ever was. <laughs> I guess the, just the little snippets of conversations that make it into a book like that. Well, I mean, there, there, there's there's worse things than that out there in literature. <laughs> I mean, pitchfork. I mean, you know, waking up in the morning to see stuff written from people that you never ever heard anything about, you know, a subject matter or something. But you know, that's that's the way all this stuff goes. I don't, you know, I try not to sweat it. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. I'm glad to have the opportunity to clear up the waiting room thing, though. Yeah. Great. That's that's super interesting. Do you remember having what are some of the like suggestions you would make to the band? Um, what are some of the like things you would nudge them to do? Any memories like that? I, I you know, it's always about the vocals primarily, you know, I mean, not that they ever sucked or anything. It's when when we first started, uh, when we were working on the Red EP, both Ian and Gee had this habit of pushing their voices too hard. They thought the louder they screamed into the mic, the the more they were really getting the emotion out there. Right. And and I was like, you know, man, you don't have to do that. You don't have to kill your voice off. So after two takes, you're starting to speak with a rasp because that means I can't record your voice anymore because if I want to comp a vocal, you know, like from three takes they're going to sound different. And the biggest thing is that you're hurting yourself. You're hurting your voice. And the other thing is that it just doesn't sound as good as I know you can sound. So, so I got them to kind of just turn down the, the sound pressure level and, and you know, the, the, the torture there, uh, the vocal cords are going through and, and just, you know, be a little more, you know, like, you don't have to scream at people, man. You know, let's let's really concentrate on the thing. You know, I mean, it sounds more cerebral than it was, you know. Right. But, I mean, you know, they really wanted the vocals to be right. They wanted them to sound good. They wanted them to be good. That's a way that uh, they've always been... Um, and I love, I love the art of singing. I love the, you know, when you work with great vocalists, it's, 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 it's amazing because I mean, all they're working with is air and muscle. Hmm. Yeah. That's you know true. what I'm saying? Your vocal cords are model and, and, you know, are, are, are muscles and, and you're throwing air through them and, and, you know, the way people ad lib and stuff like that, you know, I mean, I love that stuff. And both Guy and Brendan, I mean, both Guy and Ian are really good at it. You know, I mean, just solid stuff. And, and the cool thing is, is that art wise, they, they got better and better at it. You know, I, I think, I mean, they were never bad. You know, everyone, I think people benefit from having, 
someone in there who's not going to bullshit and and just be kind of too polite, you know? Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that I, I think that's the main reason why they wanted someone in the beginning and after the whole thing that went on, after Steady Died and Nothing and going to Albini's and coming out of that, they thought that it would be good to have someone, you know, who would just be there to, for them to bounce ideas off of, for to bounce ideas off of them and to keep them up. You know, I think Fugazi has a comfort zone. They're very close. You know what I mean? The two people that have worked with them the most are me and Don, and then John Loder did Margin Walker. And, and personally, I love, I love Margin Walker. Yeah, I was going to say, one of the interesting things about it is, you know, I, I'm sure the majority, the vast majority of people who have heard those first songs, you know, the Fugazi EP and Margin Walker, they've they've heard it on the 13 songs compilation um including me like Mm -hmm. that's i never heard those separately i got 13 songs just like most people did and i think it's so interesting how you know it's a different producer different they recorded it on a different continent even um but the two really do sound kind of of a piece in a way that i guess speaks to they do yeah how you how you brought out the more essential qualities of the band and you know loader produced jesus and mary chain uh, he worked a lot with um, Crass. Uh, he worked in very professional, like hit record type of um, situations. I mean, you know, he the records he did with Jesus and Mary Chain, I'm sure charted. I, I think that a number of records Loader did charted, and he, um, you know, he he definitely knew what he was doing, and and you know, I think our approach although it was done differently, uh, you know, getting it down on tape, was that the sound of the band is important. They have to sound like them. Because it's really easy, believe it or not, to to go in the studio and have the band not sound like them. And, and you know, by that, I, I don't mean like they don't sound like... Live is one thing, studio is the other and, you know, Fugazi, I don't think, want to record like the way the live archives sound, you know? I don't think that would have represented the, what they were doing on record very well. Right. And a lot of times when you see bands in person, it's the whole thing that, that makes you... It's, it's all an experience, you know I mean? Like, I saw Jimi Hendrix, uh, the Jimi Hendrix experience live three times when i was a little boy and and i um or you know a young teenager and i um and i've seen videos films of those shows and and i'm like god man he was so much better than this (laughs) you know i don't i doubt if he was any better i just think that it was the whole thing you know if you think the essential uh, what what the essential quality of a band is is their live show. There's so much that goes into that that can't be captured on a record. Just simply the the volume levels, I guess. You know, if you're not experiencing it that loud, a, a recording of it won't do it justice. Won't won't be the same. And that's, I think the big I think the biggest thing that's missing from 
from this video and the live experience is the audience. I mean, that that's who's feeding the beast, you know, or the band and and that and you're part of that when you're on the floor, you know. I mean, I, you know, I mean, music's like gigs to me are like magical experiences almost in a way, you know. I mean, like, you know, there's there's nights when I mean, speaking as a, a you know, guy who you know been on stage and all that stuff and played shows you know when you when you really connect it's like everybody is really on the same wave and it's something that is is wild i mean it's like a drug or something and there's just you know you just need an audience to have that same thing but i mean my biggest thing was to try to make the the you know the essence of the record has to be the way the guitarist sound com coming through the amps, drums sounding like the way they do in the room, and the vocals really sounding, you know, like they're being, you know, recorded nice, and the guy singing them, the person singing them is 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 doing his thing, and it's comfortable. If you can do that, then then you're getting there. And and, and the biggest thing is having good songs if you can, and and I think that. Every Fugazi record I've been involved with and had a, a ton of good songs, and that was really the big, big thing. Yeah, I guess if the songs aren't there, <laughs> there's not much you can do. I, I think they're really underrated songwriters. I think that 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 self-titled EP, you know, the Red EP, has has a lot of songs that I, they're really kind of pop songs in a way. Yeah. That's how I always looked at them. I looked at them as like a group that writes great songs, you know. We can talk about the genre and everything, but I just think they're, you know, when you have great songs, played great, sung great, you're there. Do you think you have a standout favorite off that first EP? I, th I, well, I mean, I, you know, look, I really like Waiting Room. I, you know, I mean, it's, it's turned into kind of a, uh, you know, uh, a few months ago, I don't know if you saw it, but there's a, a video on YouTube of this group that has like three front women. Oh, the kids. Yeah. <laughs> the kids. Right. And I saw this, I turned around and said to the person who, who was in the room, I said, wow, I, I don't know how the guys are going to handle this. <laughs> you know, I thought they did a surprisingly good job. They did a really good job man. they had all this percussion going on. The main woman singing was just really like they were all dialed in, and I. But but the biggest thing that struck me was like, you know, I kind of came to music in the sixties. You know, I mean, as a as a kid, you know, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and and I actually did see the Beatles, and and you know, all that radio and everything, because I am, I am a child of the sixties radio on me in my life. And, and when I saw them doing, that, I thought, man, you know, what's different than this group singing waiting room than a, a group I was in in junior high or, or elementary school playing Gloria or, or, um, or like Louie Louie, you know, they're totally different in terms of vocal uh, uh, lyrics, but you know what I mean? It's like a touchstone for people, man. Yeah. They dig that, you know. I, I I think that's that's cool. And from what I've heard, the band think it's pretty cool in a 
abashed way or something, but uh. <laughs> well, yeah, it's the kind of thing that that song is like uh, thirty plus years old at this point. It's probably something these kids like their parents are really into and like maybe turned them on to. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's something you know. You've heard that thing about like how parents. I, I don't know. I I know. I asked my father when I was about. 12 or something I said how did you feel like when you were my age maybe I was yeah I had to have been 12 and and he said I said how do you feel like being in the age you are and he said I feel like I'm 25 and and I have to say the same and I'm I know I'm older than my dad was when I asked him that and um that's a that's a good thing <laughs> <laughs> 